Hello, all. Uh, I didn't get my usual blog talk radio. Uh, it says I'm on live now. I assume I will. I am, in spite of the, uh, again, the little error in the electronics of the, of the station. But whatever, I assume. Uh, although, when you assume, said the great philosopher Felix Unger, you make an ass of you and me. No, I think I am on. Um, I'm going to talk today about stories uh, that, uh, uh, about how uh, we make our worst fears, anxieties, terrors come true. Um, and I'm going to include a discussion uh, on, a, on a political, on an issue related to the war. Um, but before I do that, let me discuss a little bit about the ideas of uh, one of my favorite uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, that I don't know if you even if she's read it all anymore. Um, uh, Karen Horney, H-O-R-N-E-Y. When people see the name, they say, "Oh, Karen Horney." Actually, she was a very liberated woman, and uh, she was anything uh, if not, uh, you know, she was not horny. In any event, she was a wonderful, sensitive uh, individual. And a lot of her work, particularly in a wonderful book called Neurosis and Human Growth, you don't hear the word neurosis anymore. Neurosis is what we all are, uh, a little mishugana, a little crazy, because everybody is, in some degree, a little crazy. That is, we're not really crazy where we'd be called psychotic, but we suffer and we mess up our lives because of how we handle our suffering. And that collective set of psychological problems used to be called by the psychiatrists neuroses. Uh, now they call it anxiety disorders, and they, 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 they've gotten rid of the word neurosis. Uh, I'm so trained with it all those years, I kind of still use it. But um, well, I'm a, a little mishuganess, a little craziness is uh, Horney described in the following way. <clears throat> she said, Many people have all kinds of fears about themselves and the world. And there's really two things you can do. Um, not My words are, you can create a story that includes these fears, recognize them, admit to them, and then struggle to find a way, either by yourself or with others, to do something about them. That is, to come to grips with them. And if possible, the stuff that comes out of childhood, solve Many of the problems that are, um, are, are uh, not being faced. Um, and she tended to organize uh, these problems uh, into kind of categories. And she said that there are some people who fear terribly being rejected, but they won't admit that they fear being rejected. What they do is that they clear themselves not to need other people. They make up a rule. They create, in my words, a story. And their story is, I don't need anybody. Nobody needs me, and I'm fine. Okay? Now, if that were really true, if they can, can disconnect from the human race, uh, that would be fine, and they'd get along this way. And as long as they're uh, you know, not breaking the law um, or upsetting anybody too much, uh, that would be it. Okay? They want to be alone. They want to be alone. And many of us like to be alone. But what she's talking about is the kind of aloneness that the person becomes, it becomes extreme because the person can't confront the fact that they really think there's something awfully wrong with them and that others are going to reject them. 
So they develop a style of reject before you can be rejected. The second type of individual is a person who can't stand to be dependent on others, can't stand to ask anybody for favors. Uh, They've been hurt. They're afraid of being weak. And so they become the strong. They do for everybody else, even when they don't want to. They can never say no to others. Um, And they become paragons of saintliness and goodness. So these are individuals who think there's something wrong with them, but the style with which they deal with it is to become perfectly good, to be perfectly saint. And if you've ever lived with any of these individuals, they can drive you crazy. You can drive yourself crazy. Uh, You say to some, you know, uh, uh, your mother said to you, uh, I cooked you supper. Gee, Mom, I'm afraid I can't eat uh, because I was uh, hungry. I had a slice of pizza. And then your mother, who's perfectly good, says, well, I worked all day for you. I I struggled. I made this wonderful supper, and now you won't eat it. And, of course, the kind of guilt trips that this can produce in people can lead them to have all kinds of issues that they can't include in their story. What kind of awful person am I? I let down my perfectly good mother or my perfect husband or my perfect wife. The third type is the person who has to dominate everyone and everything, has to do everything the best of anyone. Uh, if, you, you know, if you look, more women are, are become saints. <clears throat> they get along by being good and saying yes, even when they don't want to say yes. And then there's the individual who has to dominate. He has to be the best. He has to know everything. Um, when I began to look at myself seriously years and years ago, <clears throat> I had to be the smartest one around. And the problem is that no one is ever that good or that smart or can tolerate being that alone. Uh, most of the time that's true. And so I would become nasty and cynical to people uh, if I thought they knew more than me uh, or they challenged my knowledge. And again, I was a shitty teacher in the early years of my teaching. I was interesting. I was a good lecturer. Uh, I made things interesting and clear. I think I had that value, that, uh, that, that attribute. But if a student challenged me, if a student could prove me wrong, uh, I could either become a nasty son of a bitch uh, or very cynical and uh, not accept the fact that they, in fact, knew more than me. Uh, now, this, this, these styles of being perfectly dominant or perfectly alone or perfectly good tax all of our energies, and they keep us from recognizing who we are. They, they create all kinds of problems in our interpersonal relationships. Because if I have to be the baddest mother on the block, I have to beat up or dominate all the other people. Uh, If I have to be good, I can't let anybody do me a favor. Um, If I have to be dominant all the time, I mean, you see guys who have 104 fever, and they're laying down and they're dying, and and, and they, uh, they, they get up and go to work anyway. And they get sick, and they get pneumonia, and they have all kinds of serious problems that result from a failure to accept the reality of how they actually feel. And that is, I shouldn't get out of bed today. Um, Wonderful things happen between husbands and wives along these ways, boyfriends and girlfriends. Uh, Picture for a second the guy is driving, and most of the time, if you look at most cars, it's the guy who is driving. Uh, Nine out of ten times, the woman who's sitting next to him in the car could drive just as well. Uh, but it's the man who has to drive. Men are taught you have to be in control. And to let a woman 
take control is to have all kinds of psychological problems. It brings you in contact with the possibility that maybe you're not the baddest mother, the most powerful individual in the entire universe. So he's driving, and he doesn't know where he is. Okay? Now, can he ask for help? Can he say, do you know where we are, to the girlfriend sitting next to him or his wife? Uh, she then dares to say, why don't you pull into a gas station? I don't need any help. I don't need anybody's help. I can do this myself. They must have moved the goddamn building. Okay? And, and this kind of struggle then exists between people in which one dominates the other. Uh, let's say this guy doesn't make enough money. He can't say, I'm not making the kind of money I need. <clears throat> he has to be the perfect provider for his family. Well, the wife recognizes this. She sees this. So she says, I'm going to get a job. And he now says, you can't get a job. Who'd hire you? He puts the wife down because he's afraid that maybe she would make money. Maybe she'd make more money than he can make. Eh? And this goes on and on and on until the relationship gets torn, and torn apart. Uh, I've seen people get divorced over the fact that finally the woman says, to hell with you. She does go get a job and uh, makes more money than the husband. And rather than say, and by the way, I was in this position, uh, uh, boy, is this fabulous. Look at the, our collective income and how nicely we can live. And the fact that I don't have to work three jobs, but I could reduce to one job. Um, isn't that wonderful? My wife, who's my helpmate, uh, who's my life partner, is now bringing in equal to or more of the bucks. It goes into the same account. We spend together what it is we want to spend. The decisions are collective or individual. doesn't really matter. And here we go. But no, this guy now has to fight like hell. And the woman has to fight like hell to justify making money. Even though he knows deep down and not so deep down, because he lays awake in bed at night, uh, uh, worried to hell that he can't um, make the kind of money he needs to make. The kids need sneakers. The kids, uh, you know, there's a, they, they want to go to summer camp. His wife wants to do the house. He wants the house done. But he can't say, look, I need help. Okay? Under these circumstances where people stake out the idea that they're perfect in one way or another, where they can't admit to feeling the failure. They can't incorporate it in their story, and they can't handle it in a way uh, that I would call reasonable. I wouldn't say rational, but reasonable. Uh, the physical and psychological consequences are enormous. They're enormous for the individual themselves, and they're really enormous for uh, the, the collective, the family that has to deal with this and the relationships that are involved in it. Now, we are a, col a, a collection of individuals in a society. And one of the things I've been more and more concerned about are the psychological effects of this war in, in uh, Iraq. I almost said Vietnam because my thinking about this started in, in the about the war in Vietnam. I mean, I, this has been something uh, that I've been worried about since Vietnam. And I feel that America was psychologically damaged as a collection of individuals, and as a society, by its failure to come to grips with what went on in Vietnam. Now, Vietnam, when it started, and, and this war is unbelievably similar to, to the Vietnam War. Uh, the war is declared to be over. 
Every other day, there's a new reason why we're in the war. I listen now, we're going to have to stay in it till victory, but nobody says what victory is. I can't even imagine what victory is. Um, I, the the um, uh, idea that, that we went in uh, and, and may have gone in for oil, we did all kinds of reasons, all has never been discussed. And anybody who raises any objection uh, uh, is told by the perfect patriots around them uh, that you are a traitor, that you are against your country, that you don't support the troops. And this started in, in, in the Vietnamese War. Well, actually, true of all wars. But the Vietnamese War had no real justification. And this war, 80% of Americans now agree, uh, was a mistake to get into. 80% believe that we were lied to, that we swallowed these lies. Um, and by the way, I don't know who swallowed the lies. I knew from the beginning uh, that uh, this was somehow trumped up and that the, the real reason for going in there uh, either had to do with George Bush's trying to work out a problem with his father uh, and his family, or that uh, we'll find out someday that Cheney met with the people, the oil executives, and we haven't been able to find in seven years what went on in that discussion. Uh, everything is kept hidden. Uh, that maybe they were looking at, 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 the, at the way in which this uh, war could finance itself and we'd have an easy victory, etc., etc. But nothing is now being discussed. There's a wonderful column. I always read Frank Rich on the Sunday New York Times. Uh, he, he used to be the theater critic for the New York Times, and now he does, uh, I think, some of the most penetrating op-ed pieces uh, that anybody does. And the article deals with the fact that there are now a number of movies out, uh, many of which do not really take a stand on the rightness or wrongness of the war, but they take a stand on what is being done to the soldiers, what's being done to Iraq, what's being done to the Iraqi society, um, the way in which this war has been so unbelievably mismanaged. A friend of mine went to a symposium in which a brigadier general and another high-ranking soldier just back from Vietnam uh, talked about how uh, the American army is now so stretched thin and that so many of the people who train, the career people, have gotten out because they don't see this as either a just war or as a winnable war, that we're sitting on the lid, and the minute we get out, uh, it's going to explode no matter what we do. Uh, that, that there's sectarian violence, that this goes back 800 years, the killing between the Sunnis and the, and the Shia, um, that we're dealing with a situation that was never really understood, and that the litmus test for going in was not to, 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 to shore up the country afterwards was not to deal with the realities on the ground, but to live up to the ideology of those who sent these people there. I mean, the perfect thing that... Uh, Karen Hornite describes. And I'm not now talking to those people who do believe that this is a perfect war and that everything was done was right and you're not allowed to discuss it because it's traitorous. I'm talking to those of all of us, that 80%, many, many of us who really are suffering because we won't go see these movies, Frank Rich describes. We're not going to talk uh, about the war. You cannot get a discussion even going. 
people get very upset, people get excited, the true believers immediately start to scream you down. And I'll tell you, anybody who screams at you because you say you don't believe in God or you disagree with the war, you disagree with the letters, is a person who's not screaming at you but their own doubts. That's what Hornei describes, and that's what I truly believe. People who are secure in their own opinion don't try to beat up on other people for having a different set of beliefs. They just don't. That's 40 years of experience and tons of reading and discussion with many other people in the field. It's the person who has doubts and is trying to handle those doubts by not giving anyone a chance to even say anything about this. But the doubts are handled in other ways, these anxieties, these fears, these shames we have about this war. And that is by disconnecting, by not having anything to do with it. Uh, I happened to watch the film In the Valley of Elat, uh, which is, takes place in the United States, uh, and the tribulations and the psychological problems and the horror of those soldiers, young soldiers, who went away as buddies and as young American, all-American boys, and came back as, as people who killed and can't come to grips with the nightmare, the surreal nightmare that they were thrust into in this or any war, but particularly where uh, at home nobody even seems to know or want to listen or hear about this terrible thing that's been going on uh, in Iraq. Right. Uh, I watched it, and I was tremendously upset. It was a superb film in the Valley of Elat about a father coming to grips, who is a military man and very pro-war, and coming to grips with his son's murder and why he was murdered and, and how becoming a murderer when you don't come to grips with yourself as a soldier uh, uh, becomes something completely understandable, not acceptable, not morally right, but understandable. And he goes on in his column to talk about all of these films and how the Petraeus, General Petraeus and Ambassador Crocker, uh, nobody watched the show. They don't want to watch. They don't want to hear. And why? And he analyzes this in really, without ever mentioning Karen Horney, in very much Karen Horney in terms, in psychological terms. Uh, most Americans do not want to hear, see, or feel anything about Iraq whether they support the war or oppose it. They want a look-away period and have been doing so for some time. Um, that's why last week's testimony by General, I'm reading from the article, General David Petraeus and Ambassador Ryan Crocker was a non-event beyond Washington. The cable networks duly presented the first day of hearings, but only it seemed because the show could be hyped as an American Idol-like competition in foreign policy, one upmanship, for the three remaining presidential candidates, all senators. When the hearings migrated to the House the next day, they vanished into the same black hole, media hole, where nearly all Iraq stories now go. If the Olympic torch hadn't provided an excuse to cut away, no doubt any handy weather disturbance would have served instead. The simple explanation for why we shun the war is that it has gone so badly. But another answer was provided in the hearings by Senator George uh, Vanovich of Ohio, one of the growing number of Republican lawmakers who no longer bothers to hide his exasperation. He put his finger on the collective sense of shame, not to be confused with collective guilt, although I think there's a lot of guilt involved here too. 
that the truth of the matter, Mr. Ivanovich said, is that we haven't sacrificed one darn thing, one darn bit in this war, not one. Never been asked to pay for a dime except for the people that we lost. And I think that everybody that I know in one way or another is caught up in this. And it's creating tremendous kinds of anxiety. And it's ripping families apart because it can't be discussed. And people are having blood pressure problems and people are having problems sleeping. Of course, the, the, uh, the uh, drug companies are ready to give you a whole uh, pharmacopoeia of stuff to deal with the inner feelings that are not being uh, owned by placing them in a constructive story, in a story that allows them to be uh, uh, resolved or worked through. Uh, I keep waiting for the public, I keep waiting for the Democrats to discuss, as I said last week, the suffering that the war uh, discusses. It's now on the back burner to the economy. Uh, it's going to be uh, hurricane season in another month or so here in Florida. And I'll turn on the television and all there'll be 24-7 are weather reports, whether or not the weather um, is, is uh, bad or not, whether it's threatening or not. So this is what I think is going on. I think that uh, America is shutting down. I think that as a collective, uh, we are running away from our feelings, our responsibilities. We're running away from our sense of integrity. And I don't mean those who truly, deeply believe in the rightness of the war. Uh, I'm talking about those of us uh, who deeply, deeply are disturbed by the way in which the politicians have handled this, uh, the people who started the war, the mismanagement of the war, uh, the way in which our army is being overextended. These generals that spoke at the symposium my friend went to said, Vietnam, it took 10 years to replace uh, the military uh, that was uh, uh, disturbed, distorted, and, and damaged in Vietnam. It'll take an entire generation uh, uh, to, to restore the army now, to bring new personnel in. They talk about the fact that the only people who are going in now are kids who are really desperate. 15% don't have high school diplomas, they, they reported. Uh, more and more of the kids uh, have crime, have records, and they are going into the war. Uh, this is, is not the way uh, a war should be fought. Uh, we're not being taxed. It's not supposed to cost us anything. And yet the money is being spent in the billions and the billions. And everybody I know deeply knows that when you're in that, that kind of debt, sooner or later it catches up to you and bites you on the ass. Um, all my life I have dealt with people denying the fears that they have. Uh, just recently I was told by some dear friends about their son-in-law who had terrible fears of cancer because his father and mother both died of cancer. And he started developing severe stomach pains and uh, diarrhea and constipation and waited over a year to go to the doctor uh, and only went when he collapsed and uh, blood was coming uh, uh, in his urine. And uh, now uh, he is confronting stage four colon cancer with uh, the spread into his liver and his lungs. The problem he has to deal with now, because he didn't face and deal properly with the problem a year ago, a year and a half ago, 
uh, I now found out that he doesn't never goes to the doctor. He just doesn't go to the doctor. Um, uh, how many women fear what might be found in their breast if they go to a mammogram? The terror of most women I know, and many women, is breast cancer. Um, when it could be caught and be made curable, when it can be much more easily treated with uh, either surgeries, uh, etc., that won't be disfiguring, uh, it's not found out. So the person lies awake in bed, terrified, or squeezing it out of their mind, repressing, detaching, splitting it away from consciousness. And uh, if there's nothing there, then there's nothing the lost, except the agony of not knowing and never having relief. But if there is something there, uh, then it's going to continue, whether it's denied or not. So, uh, I think that we are psychologically in trouble as a society. I think that if we can't have a discussion about how we feel about this war, if our uh, leaders, particularly the Democrats who claim to be against the war, uh, don't seem to discuss this, if seven years went by, and the supposedly the the, op, the opposition the uh, honest opposition party went along with everything because they were afraid they'd be called names uh, traitors or, or or against America um, and didn't speak their conscience and weren't uh, 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 didn't have the kind of courage and the kind of of uh, uh, moral strength to confront this and the rest of us have our heads up our butts or buried in the sand, uh, this is going to bring a very, very bitter harvest. Uh, it, it's already bringing it, uh, but I, I loathe to think what will happen to, my, again, my children, and especially my grandchildren, uh, when, when this cancer uh, doesn't get uh, dealt with, and, and how far along the cancer has been spreading uh, and again, you know, cancer often spreads and spreads and spreads without any kind of symptoms. And uh, all of a sudden, we find out and it's too late. So, time to send your congressman a letter. It's time to speak up. Time to do a radio show. Time to talk to your friends about how you feel. You don't even have to discuss whether the war is right or wrong. You have to discuss it in terms of what you think about the war, what you feel about the war, or about any other kinds of problems. Um, when you stop being the horse's ass because you have to know everything or be the smartest, the best, uh, when you don't have to throw your tennis racket down, as I see people do, because they lost the game and they can't tolerate the idea that they may be second best, and of course, sooner or later we're all second best, third best, ten best, uh, when we can't accept certain realities and come to grips with them and say, I'm not who I used to be, my knees are bad, my arm is bad, I can't play like I used to be, uh, this guy is simply better than me, uh, this person does nicer things than I do, uh, she cooks better, uh, she's kind to her, to her children, and then make a story that says I'm going to try harder to do these things because I recognize something has to be done, or that I am to death with this war, that it terrifies me, that I can't imagine the surreal, unreal situation that so many of these soldiers are in uh, when, when their family life is being uh, uh, pulled apart because they don't have enough money, that there isn't enough support. And then they come home and discover that the war isn't even on the minds 
of anybody who sent them there, because we all did send them there uh, by our tacit, quiet approval. We sent them there. Uh, what do they think uh, when they don't matter and their sacrifice uh, has no meaning? What will they do? Uh, will they turn on themselves like so many of the Vietnam vets? Will they become more drug addicted, more suicides? We're seeing this all the time now. Um, or will they turn on us? Will they become violent? Will they become uh, uh, an explosion of violence? I don't know, uh, but I know that this is going to uh, bear nasty fruit because we are not dealing with this as we should. So, uh, I don't think I cheered anybody up today, but that's too damn bad. Listen, it's uh, 5 o'clock, cocktail time. You can cheer yourself up. I certainly have a beautiful bottle of uh, Pinot Grigio that we opened last night, and I intend to pour myself a long glass, uh, and uh, I'll feel better in a little while. But how's that for sticking your head up your ass? Take care, folks, and I'll talk to you Next week, I don't think I'm going to be on the air. My children and grandchildren are coming down here, and I don't think I'm going to have the time or the privacy to be able to uh, do a show. But two weeks, if all is well, I promise to speak with you. Thank you. If you like the show, give it a rating. Give it a good rating if you like. If you don't like it, don't give it any kind of rating. Who needs a bad rating? Take care. Hello? Blog Talk Radio.
Hello? 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 